We will be in Mark, Mark chapter 4 today, Mark chapter 4. Pastor Jeff has been doing a series this month on relationships. I'm not going to steal any of his thunder, but we are going to talk about thunder and relationships today. I want to start off with a question again. What does it take for you to trust someone? What does it take for you to actually trust someone? We could ask it another way. Are there any people that you don't trust? Yeah, I think we could name a few of those. And some of them you even voted for. Uh, And we say, I don't trust them. Uh, It may be uh, people, though, in your life, you know, that were friends or even family at one time, and there's broken relationships there now. But what does it take for you to trust someone? You have to to get to know them, right? You have to spend some time with them. Think of a dating relationship. I look back fondly on my time at college. Samantha and I, we, uh, we started dating the last three weeks of my senior year. So I waited till the very end. I wasn't quite desperate, I would say. <clears throat> I might have gone on uh, four dates with four different girls the month before, and then, you know, it's one of those things where you give up because, you know, you didn't find any real connection. There wasn't maybe a lot of trust there. One of those dates, uh, I asked probably 40 questions, and she didn't ask me a single question, so you knew that wasn't going anywhere. And then I was like, okay, I have this dating outing. It's once a semester type thing that they do. I had to ask someone out. I'll ask Samantha. We, knew, we had known acquaintances. You know, her sister, older sister, married my best friend from high school. I'll ask her out. If she says no, I'm not going on the dating outing type thing, right? And uh, it only took three dates. And I said, here's where I'm going. If you want to get married, we're going to keep on going in this direction. <laughs> I was serious. I wasn't messing around. We just sat down and said, this is what we're doing. And, and basically, I said, either you're in or out. Because <laughs> at that point, you just don't mess around. And uh, praise the Lord, she's, she was in and she's still in. And I don't know why she trusts me, but <laughs> those are good memories, you know, to look back on and see how God grew a relationship and how trust was built there. What we're looking at is a relationship. It's not necessarily the main focus of relationships with one another. The relationship we're looking at is our relationship with Jesus, specifically. And that relationship and the story that we're going to be reading in Mark 4 was was put to the test. It's put to the test in the midst of a storm. It's a story we're all familiar with, one that you've heard if you've grown up in church in in the Bible stories. And it's Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, and he's rebuking the storm. But I want you to see the the relationships that happened there and asking the question, what does it take to trust someone, to have faith in someone? Or what does it take really for you or for me to trust God fully? Because we'll see as we come to the end of this story, there, there was some faith but Jesus was calling for more faith, for more trust. And so I've titled this sermon, Fear to Faith, Finding Peace in a Great Storm. 
fear to faith, finding peace in a great storm. Are there any great storms in your life? <laughs> Have you ever been through any great storms? Not talking just physical storms, but just the storms, the trials of life that come up and what God is trying to teach us through those about our relationship with him and to him. So we'll be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Fear to faith, finding peace in a great storm. So this this story starts in a boat. For some of you, that might be a good place to start. Some of you, you might hate the water. But if you look at verse 35, and it says, and the same day, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and the same day when the even or evening was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. So this is the evening. What had happened just before this? Well, if you start at the beginning of chapter 4, we won't look there. I'm just going to give a brief summary. Christ had been preaching on the Sea of Galilee, and a great multitude had come. Why had they come? Well, he's teaching things that these people had never heard before. Remember, they're saying Jesus is preaching with authority. But he's also doing things they had never seen before either. He's performing miracles. So a great crowd comes, and, and there's, there's such a great crowd that uh, he actually retreats a little bit to get a little space, and he asks for a boat, and he, he goes out a little bit, and that way he has some space. You know, give some water there, give him a, a platform and a pulpit to preach from, and the acoustics would have helped as well as he's speaking. And so all these people are here listening to him, and he, he just got done with really a long day of preaching, talking about the kingdom of heaven specifically, And what it is like, he gave some parables that confused some people, but he explained to his disciples. So it's that very same day, after a really a long day of ministry, that Jesus comes to, and they're still in a boat. Now, I don't know what your relationships with boats are. Some people really like them. Some people, not so much. You know, you get seasick on them. I think of a few boats I've been on, mostly just small ones. You know, it was fun experience, kayak and whatnot. I know my wife, though, she's been on some larger sailboats, and she has, uh, maybe I could go so far as to say a hatred for the water, and the reason is, is when the water is deep, and the water is dark, and you see movement in the water, there's a great unknown there, and you don't want to be in that water, because you don't know what's coming up out of the water, <laughs> and what may be lurking below. So it, it could be maybe a a scary thing as well, but either way, when you get in a boat, you, you have to trust the person in charge of that boat, right? I think of Al. He, he has taken me fishing several times, and I have great trust for Al and for his boat because I know he takes care of it, he stores it well, he knows you know, how to drive it, all of those things, and it makes for a really good and pleasant experience going fishing. Well, here, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat, and when we think, uh, we read this, it says ship in the Bible. We, th- we think ship of a large thing, but really the, the Galilean Sea was about 14 miles by 8 miles as far as the size of it. So you think Anderson Reservoir, Anderson Ranch Reservoir, that's about 14 miles long, only a mile wide. Multiply that by 8-ish. That's the size of the Sea of Galilee. We would call it a large lake. So you could see across. And their boats... As far as we know, they're maybe 25, 30 feet long, and they're not aluminum. They're wooden, <laughs> handmade, so maybe not what we would necessarily put the, the most faith and trust in. But who are these disciples that were with them? Remember, they were fishermen, right? 
There are people that were accustomed to the Sea of Galilee, and they were used to being in boats. So I just want you and myself, we want to put ourselves with the disciples right there in the boat. Now, we don't all fit, but in our mind's eye, let's all get in the boat with Jesus and experiencing what they're experiencing over this past day. And, and we'll see that it starts with this first idea. We'll, we'll break up this passage, this portion, into three separate ideas. It starts with serving together with Jesus. And that's verses 35 and 36, and we've talked about that a little bit, where these disciples, they had been with Jesus all day. Verse 35 again, the same day when the even was come, he, hath, he saith unto them, let us pass over to the other side. When they had sent away the multitude that was standing there, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships or little boats. So who were the people with Jesus? Let's focus on that for a moment. These people were disciples. These were the committed followers of Jesus. Notice they sent away the multitudes and who was left? It was the people in the boat with Jesus and some other little boats around. These were the people that were dedicated they wanted to do what was right. They wanted to follow Jesus. They weren't just there for the show. They were going to stick with him and see what happened. And this was after a long day of work, of Jesus ministering, preaching to everyone. And they, these disciples had stuck around for all of that. So they're still with him. So these are, these are people that were serving together with Jesus, doing the work alongside Jesus, helping him with his ministry. We'd say these are committed disciples committed followers, people that love Jesus, that wanted to do what is right. So if you're here today, I'm going to assume that for most of you, that, that's true about you as well, that you want to be, that I want to be a committed follower of Christ, right? We want to be about the work that Christ has called us to. We want to minister in the way that Christ has ministered. And so we, just like them, are are active in this pursuit of following and serving together with Jesus. And notice they were, they were going in their minds about normal everyday business in some ways. Yes, Jesus was preaching there, but now he's saying, Get in, let's, let's take this boat to the other side. This was nothing new to these men. This was just like another day's work. They had been in the boat who knows how many countless times, whether it be the day or the night. The fishermen would often fish at night. Uh, that's when the catching is good. And so they knew the Sea of Galilee well. They knew the boat well. This was just normal, everyday work that they were in. There's fishermen sailing in a fishing boat across the lake. Nothing too out of the ordinary, right? Just another day's work with Jesus. And they were ministering to others. You know, others in this, these little ships that were around them, they wanted to follow Christ too and, and be with him. And so they were dedicated and coming with the main disciples. So the, the first thing I want to point out here is that these are not just sideline disciples. These are people that are wanting to follow Christ and are committed to following Christ. So in the, in the midst of all of this, you think, okay, here are people that love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. They know Jesus. They trust Jesus, right? They have a relationship with him. They've been with him. He tells them to do something. They're obeying. Go to the other side. Okay, we'll obey. And so if, if they're a committed follower of, of, of Jesus, nothing bad ever is going to happen, right? Nothing uh, is ever going to affect that relationship, right? Well, actually not. Because we see in the next two verses, verses 37 and 38, 
And I've titled this Surviving the Storm with Jesus. It's not so much maybe surviving. It's really a point where their faith is tested. Verse 37, these disciples then are in the boat crossing the sea at the evening. And it says, verse 37, there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. So what is he talking about? A great storm. The, the, the Sea of Galilee is actually uh, below sea level, yet it's a freshwater lake. And around, surrounding it are mountains, mountain regions, maybe not as big as some of the mountains that we think of, but there's still mountains there. And so there will often be storms that can come over those, and you don't even see them, and they'll, they'll creep up on you, and then the winds will rush down into the, the valley where the, the Sea of Galilee is. And so these storms can come up suddenly. And it doesn't just call it a, a storm, it's, it calls it a great storm. This idea of great is mega. It's a big one. It's a big storm that's coming over the mountains and down onto the lake. And it's almost as it catches them off guard. And the word storm here has the idea behind it of even hurricane. You know, so all the winds that go in it, uh, in Matthew, he uses a different word for storm. It's the same word that we use for earthquake. In other words, natural big disaster is the idea here. It's not just a, a little storm, but it's one that, that catches you suddenly and, and off guard, and it, it causes fear. I don't know if you've been in any natural disasters. I've never been on, an, uh, on the ocean when a big storm hit. I don't think I could handle that just from the little time I've spent on a boat. I grew up in Kansas, which is about as landlocked as you can get. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity, you know, for uh, ocean. But in Kansas, we did have natural disasters. We had uh, lovely things called tornadoes. And, you know, those were a lot of fun because that was kind of springtime was, what else do you do in Kansas except, you know, tornado watch in the springtime? There's not too much else to do, right? No, I'm kidding. I've heard all the jokes about Kansas. I know them. Uh, it is literally flatter than a pancake. Uh, they have studied and proved that to be true. But yeah, tornadoes would come every spring, and it was just kind of a way of life. We'd even have church services where I remember we'd all go to the basement because the, the sirens went off and the warning came. And that doesn't really give you peace or confidence in that, right? Because you've seen the videos. You've seen the destruction on TV that a tornado can cause. And what's the idea? If the storm is coming, you want to get out of the storm, right? <laughs> you don't stay out there and try to weather it. You try to seek shelter and, and, and hide. But there is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. They were out in the middle and that the ship was now full. I think, I think if I know my ships correctly, you're not supposed to fill them with water, Okay. Maybe submarines, but most ships, if you start filling them with water, they no longer in work as intended. And if you're on that ship, bad things happen. So the waves beat into the ship, so now it was full. Came on suddenly. These are people, again, that are wanting to follow Christ, wanting to do his work, his way, and yet a trial something unexpected, something great, something even devastating, you could say, approaches and comes upon them quickly. So let me ask you, let me ask you myself, have you ever had times where maybe there's a trial in your life, a storm of life that has overtaken you quickly, has come upon you, and you didn't know what to do? 
what is the, the human's first response? The natural, our natural response is usually fear, right? There's a, a, a afraid of the unknown, afraid of a, a fear of what could happen, may happen. It could be with health, it could be a job situation, it could be any number of things. I know for us personally, it was several years ago when Elias, he had a, a lump on his neck, just 11 months old, and we spent a month and a half going to different doctors, and we learned what you call all the different types of doctors that there are under the sun, it seemed like. Whether it's the infectious disease or, or whatever it could be, you know. Uh, and, and we even went, you know, to the cancer doctor, and they said, no, it's not that, and infectious disease. You know, and you're going through all the lists of everything it could be, and what does that start causing in your mind? Well, it's uncertainty. I don't know what this lump is. What could it be? What, you know, and it can cause fear uncertainty. And then from there, uh, they finally said, okay, we don't know what this is. Let's just remove it. And so the doctor, we finally scheduled a surgery, 11 months old. He went in, they removed the tumor. Okay, it's gone. Great. And then you get the phone call. Well, you need to come back to the, the hospital. And they didn't really say anything at that point, either that or we just weren't really listening. And it wasn't until we got to the hospital and they told us what floor to go to that you press the button and it says oncology. And you go to the, that floor and you meet with a doctor who specializes in cancer and they tell you he has cancer. And because of his age and where he's at right now, it's probably stage 4S, which means it's, it's spread through his abdominal cavity and all of that. And, you know, you're hearing this and you're saying, okay, God's in control, but this is a storm. There's fear. What's going to happen, Right. And you start going through all the tests and the setup procedures and, and this, you know, this exam and that exam and uh, coming right down to uh, where they inject him with like radioactive material, which is kind of cool because it looked like all the movies where they bring it in in a cold case, you know, and he goes in for a scan and there's nothing there. And it was one of those things like we were just about to put a port in to do chemo on our 11-month-old, then 12-month-old uh, child, and the doctors say, the cancer's gone, it's not even there. And so it was one of those things where, you know, it's like the 1% of, of all of these, these cases where it normally starts in the abdomen, but his only presented in the neck, and they were able to remove it with two surgeries, and as far as we know, he's still cancer-free. You see him, he's healthy as can be. But what does it cause you to do in those situations? It, it causes some deal of fear. It causes some deal of trepidation. It also tests your faith, right? Because, as we'll see here, the question naturally comes to why. <laughs> and isn't that so often the case? If, if you're serving God, you love God, you want to do what God wants you to do, and you come to a, a trial of life, whether great or small, it often causes us to say, why, God? You remember Job? Did Job experience any of that? He was a righteous man. God himself put Job on the testing block, right? God said, hey, Satan, look at this guy. He's righteous. <laughs> and through all of that, you know, there, uh, Job didn't have any access to the, the throne room of God. He, di he didn't see what was going on behind the scenes, did he? Yet his faith was grown through all that as well. So these trials can overtake us suddenly, even when we're following Christ. In other words, following Christ doesn't guarantee or even promise an easygoing life. And in fact, a lot of times it's quite the opposite. There's persecution, there's trials through all that. So 
Why then? Well, that's exactly what the disciples did. There was a great storm, but it's followed by a great question or a big question on the disciples' side. Look back at verse 38. There's this storm, and what what does it immediately go to after it tells us that there's this storm and they're about to sink? What does it go to? It turns to, where is Jesus? So in in the middle of the storm, verse 38, where's Jesus? And that's where it goes to, verse 38. Let's read it. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. <laughs> and they awoke him and said, say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? So what are the two questions that come right out of the gate when the trials hit? If we summarize it this way, it's simply, where is God and does he care? These are disciples following him. They have faith, right? And yet their first questions really in their own minds, their own lives, is where is God and does he care? Have you ever asked those questions in your own heart, your own life? God, where are you? You seem afar off. You don't seem to be uh, answering my need. And, and God, if, if I don't sense your presence, do you even care what I'm going through? In other words, those are the natural responses of a heart, even one that loves God, to these trials. But where is Jesus? Let's look back at that again, because it does give us important details. He's in the hinder part of the ship. What is the hinder part? It's the rear part of the ship. Why would someone be back there? Well, that's actually where the pilot or the the, uh, person in charge, the captain, would be even on a small boat like that. And why is that? Because for the rear part of the ship, you can see everything in front, right? And you, and you know how to control the ship. So Jesus is in the pilot's seat, as it were. But what is he doing? He's asleep on a cushion or a pillow. So, I mean, they even got him a nice pillow to sleep on. This is something they would have had back there as well. And so I would ask the question, does uh, being asleep mean that Jesus was disconnected from what was going all around him? I would say absolutely not. I would, I would, I would view it as this. He's, he's in the captain's chair. He knows exactly what's going on, and he's at, he's at rest. He's at peace with that. He's asleep. In other words, even in the greatest storm, it's not going to catch him off guard. This is a small boat. This is a great storm. You'd think, how in the world could someone be sleeping through that? <laughs> Maybe you know someone that's a deep sleeper and could survive through that. I, I might be able to. My wife, bless her, uh, she gets up and does all the kids' stuff. And if I get up and do anything, you know it's a bad night because she has to basically wake the dead to get me awake enough to help at all. It's just because I'm out completely. So she could be up all night. The baby could be yelling in my ear slapping my face, I'm out. So maybe I would sleep through that, but I don't think so. Not on a boat, not with a great storm, yet that's where Christ is. Completely actually in control, even though it doesn't look like it. If you were to look at it, you say, the the pilot's asleep, the captain's asleep, (laughs) we're all gonna die, we're going down. But really, in reality, he's in complete control. He knows exactly what is going on. And they awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus, we're going to (laughs) die. Don't you care? Jesus, I'm going through a hard time right now. Don't you care? Jesus, there's there's some trials in my life. Don't you care? 
You know, you can ask that question in a lot of different ways, and even with maybe slightly different attitudes, even as a disciple, and Jesus will respond to that. And the answer is, yes, of course I care. And that's what we see next. So we've seen that these are people serving together with Jesus, <laughs> 37 and 38. They're surviving the storm with Jesus. And now in these final verses, verses 39 through 41, they see the power of God in Jesus. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time really focusing on the power that Christ displays even in the midst of a great storm. So they wake him up, say verse 39, and he arose, Jesus arose, and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace be still. So what did Jesus do? He got up, he heard the cry, and he responded immediately to the cry of the disciples, to the pleading of the disciples. He heard them. And not only that, he did something immediately about it. I find these words interesting. He rebuked the wind. What does it mean to rebuke? You can tell, you can rebuke someone saying, you're wrong, right? You, you rebuke someone that way. But it really here has the idea of preventing something from going wrong. In other words, the wind had the power, did it not, in the disciples' mind, to sink the ship, to kill them, to, to make them perish. And Jesus goes and he just rebukes the wind and, and says, you're not going to do anything wrong or harmful. You're gonna, and he just prevents it from going awry. And then he says... Peace be still. What does this word peace mean? It's, it's really just that word idea of silence. And the idea of be still is I am silencing you. So really he's just saying silence, I silence you, is the idea in the midst of all this. Now, we as parents, and especially if you have young kids, you wish you had this power, right? Silence, be silent. How often does that work? <laughs> well, as a dad, it, it, sometimes it does, but usually you're making uh, not threats, they're promises, right? Promises to follow through. If you're not quiet, everyone be quiet or I'm going to pull this van over and, uh, yeah, take care of business. In other words, we, we often think we have authority. We think we can control the situation. We think we can, you know, speak, speak your truth into existence, <laughs> one of the false teachings going on today, that we can say, uh, you know, I, I have the power to do this, but in reality, when it even comes to the trials, the storms in life, do we really have any great power over it? Let me ask you this, as Pastor Jeff has asked many times before, with the whole COVID situation, does anyone really know what's going on? Does anyone have power to control the pandemic? No, I mean, we try, we think we do, we, we, we do what we can. I'm not saying don't be wise in that. But when it comes down to it, man is frail, man is futile. We don't have the power within ourselves like Christ does. And he, all he had to do is rebuke the wind and say, silence. Storm raging, waves crashing, wind blowing, peace, be still. And what happened? It's almost like it's immediate. It just says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And this great calm is 
in contrast, direct contrast to what we just looked at, the, the great storm. The word great is the same word here again, mega, a big, huge. Instead of a huge storm, it's a huge calm. What does it mean to be calm? Well, when you're talking about, about water, it's no longer choppy. When you're talking about wind, it's no longer blowing hard. There's just a calmness around you. There's a, there's a peace, a tranquility even around you. And so all, all Christ had to do was say it, and it happened. What was it like? What would it be like to be sitting on that boat, dark thunderclouds, wind blowing, rain hitting you in the face, waves crashing over, and then Christ says this, and then what was, how, like, how quick did this happen? Was it just boom, immediate, and then here you are on a glassy, smooth lake, the sun shining? You know, it's almost total shock of what has happened. And so, in the midst of this trial, this storm, the disciples themselves see the great power, the immediate results that Christ has of stillness and at rest. So let me ask you, are you able to be at rest? We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. Are you able to be at peace? Are you able to, to have silence or calmness in your own soul even when there's storms raging around? Is that even possible? And I would say yes it is because if you know Christ, he's the one that is ultimately in control overall. And even if there are storms raging, even if the wind is blowing, he has power overall. And so what was the disciples' response? Notice Christ addresses them directly after this. He takes care of that, that issue, but he then addresses their faith. And verse 40 really shows the progression of fear to faith that Jesus is calling upon his disciples even in the midst of uncertainty and storms. Verse 40, and he, Jesus, said unto them, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Notice in the previous section, they asked the where is Jesus and does he care? And here Jesus is responding with questions as well. He responds right back with why and how. And he starts with, why are ye so fearful? Now, if you were on that boat with Jesus, do you think you would have any cause to be fearful? In other words, how would have you responded? How would I respond? Do you think you would have had some fear? I know I would have. <laughs> so you might almost say, it's like, wait a minute, Jesus. Oh, is this even a fair question for you to ask? Of course I'm fearful. <laughs> we're about to die. But what is Jesus doing here? I believe he is gently but firmly pointing out in our hearts, in the disciples' hearts, their lack of, of trust in him, in their relationship. What had they just been doing with him all day? They had been hearing him preach. They had been hearing the words of Christ. They had been seeing his miracles. They had seen the crowds that were there. In other words, they, they knew that this was no ordinary man. They knew there was something more there. And so if he's on board, he's on ship, 
why are you so fearful? And he goes further than, how is it that ye have no faith? Now, would these, is that a fair assessment? In other words, is, is what Jesus is saying is that you don't believe anything and, and you're just faithless completely? No, I, actually in Matthew, it uses a different term here, but it's still the same idea. He uses the term little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. It's not that they didn't have any faith at all, but when it came to this specific instance is when he's saying there's no faith. Because they had seen him uh, in his ministry before. They, they had faith. They were following him. These were the dedicated ones that stayed with him to cross over the sea. You know, the multitude had left. Here was really the follow, the, you know, the, the, the hardcore following of Christ. So, of course, they had some faith. But he's saying in this matter, you need to grow in your faith. Is that not true of us in our lives as well? Sometimes we'll say, yeah, God, I'll trust you in that circumstance or that situation. Or God, I've seen you work in this way in the past, so, you know, okay, I, I was, yeah, you'll work in that way. But if there's something new or unexpected, all of a sudden it throws us for a loop, right? Or we're, we're off, we're, we're, we're knocked off balance in, even in our faith and say, whoa, God, I wasn't expecting that. How could you do that? Where are you? Do you care? And Jesus' response to those questions that naturally arise in our heart is, why are you so fearful? You trusted me before. Why do you have no faith in this situation? In other words, I've been faithful in the past. I'm going to continue to be faithful. Trust me in this as well. So really, he's teaching us all a lesson. He's wanting all of us to grow in our faith. So, what was their response? Verse 41 closes this, this section, this passage, where it says, And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They couldn't even believe their own eyes, so they're talking about it. Notice, though, in that response that there was still fear. They feared exceedingly, but the object of their fear had changed. What were they afraid of before? They were afraid of the wind. They were afraid of the waves. They were afraid of the, of the, of the boat sinking. They were afraid of dying. They were afraid of perishing. In other words, they were afraid of their circumstances and their life and everything going on around them. But when we come to verse 41, they were fearful, but not of those things. What were they fearful of? And this is where it comes to be a right kind of fear. They were fearful of Christ. In the sense of they were in awe and astonishment and amazement. But let me ask you something about fear. Does fear ever motivate someone to do something. Absolutely. Why were there toilet paper shortages? <laughs> Was there fear, we won't go into all the details, of sitting there and not having what you needed? So you better get a lot of it, right? There was fear that motivated, I wouldn't say it's everyone, but it definitely motivated some people. And I even found myself in some instances, like you're, you're at the grocery store and you're like, wait a minute, they were out of stock or that shelf is empty. I probably should just pick up one more. I'm not, you know, I'm not stocking up, but I'll just pick up one more. 
of whatever item it is, just, just, just in case, right? And it's not because I'm fearful, it's because everyone else is being crazy. Uh, and then, of course, everyone does that, <laughs> and that's where we get to one of those situations. But yeah, we would say absolutely fear motivates people into actions. And here, when, they're, when, when the object of your fear is in the right place, in other words, when you fear God in the right way, it will naturally lead to the right action. The Old Testament is rich with this idea of the fear of the Lord, right? Think of, of Proverbs, even Ecclesiastes. So what is this idea of fear of the Lord? Well, you could say it simply as... I've read, this isn't my original, someone else, but they, they've said the fear of the Lord is, is simply at its core, it's take, taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. In other words, if God says something, he's going to do it. If he promises something, he's going to fulfill it. If he commands it, I better obey it. His words have weight. God actually has the authority to tell me what to do, how to live my life, how to relate rightly to him. And whatever God says, that's what I'm going to believe and trust and do. That's really the fear of the Lord. And remember what it says about wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you have to know God and take him seriously. If God's actually going to give you any wisdom in your life to live his way, his will. So, they change the object of their fear from the storm to Christ. But notice, they also said one to another. In other words, that experience was so shocking in a way. It was so great. It was so revelatory to them that it wasn't just something they were keeping to themselves. Everyone was talking about it right there on those ships. Did you see what just happened? What did Christ just do? That was amazing. How did he do that? They're talking about the works of God with one another, aren't they? What had just happened. And I think there's some admonishment to us as well. Have you seen, have you experienced, do you know the great power of God in your life? Have you seen that? In other words, can you look back and say, God has done this for me. God has been great to me in this way. God He's brought me through this trial in a mighty and powerful way. And it may not always be the happy ending. Like with Elias, he's cancer-free. That's a blessing. We praise the Lord for that. I mean, we testify of God's goodness in that story of our lives. But does it always end that way for everyone? No. Death, sometimes, as, as we look at that and say, death that, that's the end story. Death, it, it's made it a, a bad ending. But no, in God's story, even death itself doesn't have a stranglehold on the believer. It's just a sting that Christ has already overcome. So even in death, because we have an eternity with God to look forward to, we can always, always look at even the trials of life and say, God is good and powerful and trying to show and teach me something through this. So they said one to another, what greatness that we've experienced. And then they end with another question. Notice all the questions in here. We've gone through, you know, where's God? Does he care? Jesus says, why are you fearful? 
where's your faith? And it ends with, what manner of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Who is this guy? Who is this person? It's like nothing else we've ever seen or experienced. And what they're seeing and realizing and what we need to realize is Christ, he is showing his divine power. He's showing that he is God. He's showing that he has control over nature. As the one that created it, he also controls it. And he holds all things together by the power of his hand. So Christ has control over all of nature. He is God. And that's what they're realizing. And you say, okay, that's good. He, he had control over nature. Well, if we continue reading in chapter 5, it actually goes on to show what all Christ has power and authority over. And so this story starts with he has control over nature. If you go to the next section, it, it, it shows a man with an unclean spirit. Christ has control over demons. He has control even over the spiritual realm. So not just the physical realm. He has control over the spiritual realm. You keep on reading. You see there's someone who is sick, a woman who is sick. And he has control over diseases that affect people. And then you get to the end of chapter 5 and you see Jairus' daughter who has died and is raised back to life, you see Christ has control over death itself. And wasn't that the disciples' concerns? Lord, we're going to perish if you don't do anything. And how amazing would it have been if he just let them all sink, you know, and then who knows how long later, he's just raising them all up from the bottom of the seafloor. He's showing he even has power over death itself. So Christ is showing throughout these, these entire passages he has power over the natural world. He has power over the spiritual world. He has power over, over diseases. He has power over death itself. He's in control. You can trust him. We can trust him. So then it comes back to the question we started with. What does it take for you to trust someone? What does it take? take spending time, would you say? Spending time with someone, getting to know them, what they're like. With Christ, there's a lot of similarities there. He's saying, come, learn of me. Follow me. Get to know me. We looked at Sunday school uh, in the Matthew passage where he says, my burden, my yoke is light. I'm going to give you rest. In other words, get to know me and you will find that I am a good and gracious and powerful God that is worth trusting and worth following. What does it take for you to trust God? Well, sometimes it takes a little bit of shaking up, right? Sometimes, at least I know for myself, we get a little complacent or just uh, used to the, the everyday. And God, in his graciousness, in his providence, I would say even, he uses things even like trials or hardships or storms, whatever you want to call them. And the purpose in there is not, not to beat us down, but a lot of, it's just to get to our, our attention. You can look at the two different words of trials and chastisement. And God uses both of those in his children's lives, Right? You think of James, the working of the trials in your life, what does it work in a believer's life? It works things like patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit, something that God wants to instill in us. 
Here we see it, it, it works trust. God is calling for us for a greater faith. You, you trust me in other areas, I want you to trust me in all areas because I am God. It, it also, as far as that idea of, of trust and what Christ has done, it causes a growth then in our own lives to say, yeah, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him no matter what. I'm going to follow him in the hard times and in the good times. I'm going to follow him when, you know, he's preaching and healing and doing all this to the multitudes, but I'm also willing to follow him across the stormy sea because I know that he's in control. So what does it take for you to trust God? You may be here today and you're not quite sure what a relationship with God is all about, what it looks like. And I would say to you that Christ, the reason he came was for you to trust in him, to have faith in him, and specifically to have faith in him that he, because he's God, as we've seen here, he has power over all of these things. He's shown that he's God, that he also has the power to take away, to cleanse you from your sin. The Bible is clear that all of us have sinned. We fall short of God's glory. We've broken that fellowship, that relationship with God, through our sin, and yet Christ came to restore that. And it's really a simple faith, a childlike faith, even the Bible calls it, of, of saying, I know I'm a sinner, I know only Christ can save me, and I want him, and I ask him to do that. And God promises that that, uh, that offer is available to all. Anyone who calls will be saved. And God gives that offer to you here today if you do not know him as your savior He's saying, come, have a right relationship with me. Learn, know me, become my disciple, follow me. And for the believer, it's a call to even greater faith. It's not something where you're pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going to have more faith today. It's something where you're availing yourself so that you can see and know Christ. And that changes us. How do we know Christ today? It's through his word, right? This is where God has revealed Christ to us. So that's why we look at the word so that we can see who Christ is. So he can become real in our mind. We say, this is who our great God is. That's who Christ is. To get to, I want to get to know him more so that I can trust him more. But I believe, I know in my own life, yes, the word has been instrumental, but even God's own providence of trials has been instrumental in my life in growing me. And I hope that you as a believer can testify to that as well. There may be, in other words, there's hard times in your life, but God uses those to grow us, to increase our faith, to trust in him. So, we end still in the boat, but just so you know, we do get safely to the other side. And Jesus continues his ministry with his disciples, and he continues asking them to follow him. So the question comes back to you and I. What does it take for you to trust God? What does it take for us to go from fear to faith? How do you find peace in the midst of a great storm? Well, these people were serving together with Jesus. They survived the storm together with Jesus. But it's really seeing the power of God in Jesus that brought them to that point of increased faith. So are you fearful? Are you of little faith? Let God use this, even this word in your heart today 
to grow your faith, to say, Lord, that's who you are. I want to trust you more. I see who you are. I see your power. I want to follow you. Give me the grace to do that. So, fear to faith, finding peace in a great storm. May God give you and me grace to trust our great God because he is worthy.